understand? Yes. Uh, yes, it was difficult to understand. I didn't understand. I didn't get the point of it. And then uh, I kind of avoided it. And then I decided to preach through it. And that gave me a deeper appreciation for it. Because that forced me to read some read some commentaries about it, get a different perspective. And then uh, there is a there is an idea about Hebrews that the whole thing is is a sermon from Psalms 110. And that it's an exposition of Psalms 110. Um, that is a common that's a common idea. I don't know if that's true or not. But it is. It does kind of help you think about. Okay, this is why he uses these these particular Old Testament texts and where and works through. Um, so it was hard. It's hard. It was hard for me to get my brain around. But then once you get your mind around it, there's some really some some great stuff in there, and uh, it's it's a great it's a great study. If there are no questions about it, and just in passing, then we'll just start. This first section is. Uh, just a, a bit of review from last week. I, there, there, I gave you guys the study, this, the the sheet of notes last time, and I had my my manuscript up here, which was different than that one. I wanted to have a lot more detail, I wanted to give you, but I forgot to do it. I got to look at, at what I gave you guys and just followed it. And so this is a little bit of a of review. Uh, let's pray together first. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be together with my friends and brothers, and I pray that you would, you know. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to understand your sacred word, and we know we have his presence, and Lord, we pray that he would do an illuminating work within us. We pray for those who are not here today, who are traveling and vacationing, and um, I pray you'd be with them, and you'd keep them safe and bring them back to us, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So let's start with the why was it written. Uh, it is well said that Hebrews was written to tell Hebrews that, Hebrews that they shouldn't be Hebrews anymore. <laughs> that was a little the byline that my, my brother-in-law used to always say. Uh, so this letter was written by someone who is conversant in Judaism to Jews. We don't know who the author is, but somebody who is familiar with Judaism. The book of Acts shows us that Christianity flourishes in, within the Jewish synagogues of the, of the Roman era. So when you see Paul, when Paul does his missionary work, he wasn't going to a village where nobody knew nothing, where nobody knew nothing. <laughs> he didn't go to a village where they were just ignorant pagans. He went to the Jewish synagogue, and he would sit there, and he would listen to what they were saying. And after they were done talking, if you were a Jewish man, and you were new to the area, they would ask you if you had anything you wanted to say because they didn't, they didn't have an official teacher or preacher. And so Paul would, as a Pharisee himself, as a learned man, he would give a talk using one of the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus Christ. Now, when you read the book of Acts, you see Paul, he didn't go in there the first Sabbath day and launch right into a gospel presentation. Sometimes he would sit there for two or three or four weeks and as people got to know him and talk with him and see, okay, this guy is knowledgeable, he's intelligent, he knows what he's talking about, then he would start t telling them about Jesus and that, say that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. Now, because he was not doing his ministry in Jerusalem, where Jesus lived and died, basically, he was way out there at the edges of the Roman Empire. People did not know the full story of what had, of what had happened in Jerusalem. So when Paul goes to these, these cities where there were Jews, Jewish 
Jewish. Uh, they weren't they weren't Jew, they weren't Roman citizens always. They weren't colonists, but they had Jewish settlements there, and they had the synagogue. He would go there, and he would begin his ministry there. And the reason he did that was because they already had a working knowledge of what he was going to talk about. They were already monotheist. They already had regard for the Old Testament. And so he worked from a position of, of a, you know, of advantage. He, he knew he was, wouldn't have to lay as much groundwork. Now, Christianity, it, it flourishes beyond the Jewish synagogues. It gets much bigger. But this is where it begins. And so the major conflicts in early Christianity are between Jews and Gentiles, Gentile Christ, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, because uh, Jewish Christians are uh, they're so they're so law oriented, because to be a Jew it, it took over your whole life the way you lived, and so Paul has to tell them you know you don't have to follow all those things anymore. The Gentiles you know they didn't care about doing it at all, but it was just it, it was a it was a good place for them to begin. And so you see that Christianity flourishes in those uh, in the synagogue communities. <clears throat> so now in these meetings, in these synagogues, there were always Gentiles around on the fringe because the Jews were a unique people. And there was something interesting about their monotheism. Think about living in a world where you have all kinds of gods to worship, all kinds of gods to worship, gods for everything. And wouldn't it get a little bit annoying to try to make all those gods happy? You're trying to, they got, got the god of this and the god of that. You're trying to keep everybody straight. Well, then you have Jewish monotheism, which says we worship one god. Now, the simplicity of just worshiping one god was probably attractive to a lot of Gentile people. Just one god, one offering to give, <laughs> one religious right to observe, they count me in. So they were intrigued by Jewish monotheism and the wholesomeness that the Jews had. The Jews had a moral wholesomeness that the Gentile nations did not have because their relationship with God was connected to the way they behaved. In the Roman Empire, in the pagan cultures, you could be an idolater and do anything you wanted. Sleep with anybody you wanted to do. You could, you could kill your slaves. I mean, you, you could practice any form of sexual decency you wanted, eat anything you wanted, go anywhere you wanted, get, get drunk every night if you wanted to. It was just... Just anything goes. Now, we all know that not every person who is unregenerate, every, uh, not every unsaved person wants to live that way, do they? There are some people who are not born again who are basically moral people. They see that immorality causes havoc and destruction. They see that, you know, uh, alcohol abuse or those kind of things can take over your body and, you know, and to be enslaved by sexual desire. They they see okay that that's a not everybody not everybody lives like a dog you know even even unsaved people so there's the Jews with their their wholesomeness and the Gentiles are intrigued by them and so the Gentiles come and they listen to the synagogue and they're in, they're well, they're welcome to come they can't partake of any any Jewish rites that are taking place but they can come and they can listen and then some of the some of the Gentiles convert to Judaism. And they become, and they call them proselytes. And the first step of becoming a Jew for a man is to be what? Circumcised. Circumcised. Now this, this is this is kind of a big deal, because in the Roman culture, a lot of their business transactions take place in the public baths. 
and you're standing around in public baths, and you're seeing all, 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 the, all the guys around there, something is going to be obvious <laughs> once the circumcision has taken place. And, and, and even in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about this. He says, if you were born again, if you come to Christ and you're circumcised, do not seek to be uncircumcised. And the Greek word there is interesting because it refers to a stretching of the skin, of a, of a stretching of the foreskin to appear like they had been, had not been circumcised. It's, a, yet to, it's not obvious in the English, but in, but in the Greek, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a special word. And John Gill goes into some, some detail about the methods by which they would do this, which are, uh, it's, it's interesting. So, so these these proselytes, these Gentiles who are becoming Jews, they're in these synagogues. So when Paul comes to the synagogues, there are natural Jews like him. There are Gentile uh, uh, persons who are just interested in Judaism. Then there are Gentiles who have converted to Judaism. That's the three groups of people that are in the synagogues. And Paul goes there, and that's where he begins his, uh, his, his ministry, because they're already talking about, uh, about the Bible. and what, They have this knowledge of the Messiah. They're looking for this thing to come. So this conflict within Christianity is, is constant until Acts 15, where there's the Jerusalem Council. So sometimes this is called the First Ecumenical Council or something like that where they meet together at Jerusalem in Acts 15, and they decide if Gentile Christians can be saved without being circumcised or following the dietary laws. This is the big debate. Uh, the, the church at Jerusalem decides that Gentiles do not have to uh, be circumcised, nor do they have to follow the dietary laws, except for two things. There's two things that are commanded to observe. Number one, abstain from fornication. And you'll see this is a constant theme throughout the, the, the letters of Paul to Gentile churches is do not commit fornication. Because in that Gentile culture, in that pagan culture, fornication, ritual sex, was it was standard practice. It was as normal as falling off a log. Nobody thought anything about it. It was uh, just a, you know, not unlike the culture in which our, our world is now. I know, I know, you know, things kind of go in cycles, but our world is definitely at a, at a low cycle, I would say. The second thing they were forbidden to do at the Jerusalem Council was to eat blood, eat or drink blood. Because when they would offer the, the sacrifices to idols, they would strangle them instead of cutting their throat and letting the blood drain out. Now, uh, some people say, uh, one guy who I, I, I like him, he's, a, he's an old man in New Jersey, uh, he says... Christians should never eat a steak unless it's well done. Because otherwise you're going to be eating blood. <laughs> Jim, that's not right. <laughs> and so there's just, so, but that, that's his thinking about it. Is these, he says these are, these are New Testament church rules, right? So no eating blood. So he says no rare steaks only. You know, medium well would be okay, but you know, medium or rare or medium rare as they should be. <laughs> It's just, <laughs> well, sausage is okay, I guess, as long as there's no blood in it. Sir? Yeah. 
That's a good question. I, I don't, I, that's a very good question. I would, I would tend to say not, because Jesus kind of condemns that in Matthew, where Jesus says the Pharisees, they love to stand on the corners and they, they love the priestly garments. They like to be noticed. So Jesus kind of condemns it. Maybe, maybe there was a lesser level of dress, you know, that Paul would wear when he went to the, to the synagogue to let people know, I am a Pharisee. Um, the Pharisees... Uh, had excommunicated Paul, though, officially. So, you know, it's, it'd be like if you've been, uh, I guess a good illustration might be, Jock, you tell me if this would be wrong or not. If a guy has been court-martialed from the military, is he allowed to, to wear his uniform later on? No. So so I would I would say may, maybe something like that, if he'd been disfellowshipped from the Pharisees, because he turns against them, and they and they cause him lots of problems. Um, but that's, that's a good question. That would be, that would be, uh, uh, that's an excellent question. I never thought about that, but that would that would grease the skids for his for for them to say, okay, we're going to listen to you, if they recognize his status as a scholar. I think the harder for it though to get his points across. Could be that could be. Now being a being a Pharisee was 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 positive because there's these two groups: Pharisees and Sadducees. The Sadducees do not believe in a resurrection or angels. Pharisees believe in a resurrection and angels. So. Uh, to be a Pharisee, to present yourself as a Pharisee, is more consistent with Christianity than to be a Sadducee because of the resurrection idea. So that, that's a. I'm gonna keep my appeal for stuff like that. I've never noticed that in, in any reading, but. Yeah. Yep. Mm hmm. I agree. That would be very helpful. So this conflict is this this conflict goes on to Acts 15. It doesn't really go away at Acts 15. That's just when the Christian church says, "Here's what we believe about it," and they move forward. So then you have about a 20-year period where um, there is a shift from Judaism uh, to Christianity, in the big time. Uh, so after 20 years, the Hebrews who have become Christians. They are, there, are, there, are a, there are a few unrealized hopes that are causing some of them to consider returning to Judaism. Because this is what you see in those early chapters of Hebrews. As he says, do not go back. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? It's a warning to not go back to Judaism. Because if they go back to Judaism, they're turning their back on the Messiah, on Jesus, on the promises of the salvation that the Lord has given to us in Christ. So... They're tempted to go back because what was promised is not taking place. The unrealized hopes are eschatological in nature because G Jesus is the Messiah. What's the Messiah going to come and do? He's going to come and save his people. And the Jews had their view of his salvation was he's going to come and save them politically and nationally. He's going to set up a kingdom. Take your Bible. Look at Acts chapter 1. And this, this bears witness to 
that idea. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Acts 1, 6. This is post-resurrection. Jesus has met with the apostles here. They're all together. Verse 6. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? This is their concern. Are you going to do it now? They're longing for this eschatological kingdom to come. They want to see their nation restored and established as as promised in the old, in, in Isaiah 66. Like, is, it, is it going to be now? Is, are we going to enter the grand and glorious age where we will no longer be an oppressed people, an enslaved people? We're going to be back on top. <laughs> are you going to do it now? Especially yes, especially them. And then look what Jesus says in verse number seven. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. So he doesn't say it's not going to happen. But he says, this is not our concern. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be witnesses in the, be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so here is the, the apostolic commission once again. We're going to take this good news to, throughout the world. It's not time for the visible kingdom or the political kingdom yet. It's still out there in the future. So, well, then you have the Apostle Paul's writings. Jesus said it's going to come. It's going to come. In Matthew, uh, I didn't put down the reference, but it's in, um, uh, I want to say it's Matthew 20-ish, where Jesus says, maybe it's Matthew 24, where Jesus says that this current generation is going to see the destruction of the temple. I think it's Matthew 24. Let's turn in and see if that's where it is. Uh, Matthew 24. I'm looking for a, word, a passage where Jesus says, This generation shall not pass away until these things take place. Uh, I'm not certain it's Matthew. I'm, I'm not certain it's Matthew. I'm sorry I don't have the passage to, to tell you right off the top, tip of my tongue, but. This is what he says. He says, this generation shall not pass away till you see the Son of Man coming in glory and the, and the temple is going to be over, overthrown. And when he says this generation, if I told you, I said, this generation is going to see, you know, the World War III, what generation do you think I, I'm talking about? This one or one way down the road? Right now. And so Jesus said, this generation is going to see it. And then you get the book of Hebrews, 20 years later, they see that generation coming to an end. And the way you measure a generation in the Bible is either like 35 years or 40 years. Um, some people today say it's a 20-year generation. And I, and I don't know what you should use. If you, you should use a modern measure for generation or an ancient one. But when you see your generation coming to a close and Jesus has not returned yet, Jerusalem has not been destroyed, it kind of frustrates people. How long is it going to be? Yes, sir? Yeah, I think your citation is 34. Right. Thank you, Ron. 2434. So here he is saying it's going to happen soon. And when you get to, even when you get to the book of Revelation, which is written probably 96 AD, 
the, the language is still, these things will shortly come to pass. These things will soon come to pass. I don't want to get off into eschatology too much, but those words, shortly and soon, from Revelation 1, are why some people date Revelation early, before 70 AD. Because 70 AD is a huge, huge event. Because in 70 AD, Titus Vespucian comes down into Israel. He tells the Roman soldiers that, he says, to get them to tip over the, this, this temple that was 40 years in building. It was 40 years in building Herod's temple. So when Jesus is alive, it's not even finished yet. It's when he's there, it's not even done. So right, it's been done, it's been in use, and Titus Vespucian comes. He tells the Roman soldiers that in between, in the, uh, what's it called between the blocks? Uh, the mortar, the in between the blocks in the mortar, that the Jews put gold in, in between there. And you guys can have it. And so the Roman soldiers, they go to great efforts to tip them over, to get everything they can to sack and pillage. 70 AD, it, Judaism is destroyed. The central place of their worship is gone forever. Gone forever. And so Jesus, these things are going to happen. It's coming. Now, but he also says that there's going to be the, the kingdom's going to come. And the Jews are, are, are worried. What's going to happen? He said he's coming. So why hasn't he come? And you, you kind of see Peter talking about this in his letter in First and Second Peter, where Peter says, uh, let's turn there and read it. Second Peter 3, 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own and they're following their own evil desires they will say where is this coming he promised ever since our fathers died everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation so there's the the complaint you say jesus is coming well he ain't come yet now peter's writing this about 68 a.d jesus has been gone for about 35 years 35 years they've been waiting on him to come. And people are already saying, if he's coming, when's he coming? If you say you're going to meet me for lunch tomorrow at McDonald's, and you're not there in 35 years, <laughs> you're probably not coming. <laughs> and so that's why in this section in Second Peter, Peter goes on to say, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. And these are thinking, oh, so it could be a long time. Now that it could be a long time, that's that's true, but Peter, I think Peter's main point is that time is nothing to God, because uh, in sixty eight A.D. To be honest with you, it looks like Christianity is about to go out because it's it's at a low ebb, but it's going to rocket forward. It's not until the fourth century that Christianity really, well, let's see, not the fourth century, but it's. The, the real the real launching point for Christianity is still in the future. It's still relatively a small movement in 68 AD. So, because the Hebrew believers, they've turned from Judaism, they've turned to Christianity, and this Messiah, this king is not coming, they think, well, let's just go back to the old ways. And the reason they think about going back to the old ways is because the Hebrews, the Jewish people, they had learned to exist within Rome, within the Roman Empire. They learned how to exist. 
they, they knew how to compromise and play the political game. The Jews were forbidden to worship any God but the true and living God, right? That's in the, that's in the Ten Commandments. But the Jews, they, they, they would go down and they would offer a token offering to Caesar. It was one pinch of incense. Everybody had to make an annual offering to Caesar. It's one pinch of incense on the sacred fire. And the Jews, they had worked, they had worked out a way, a, a system of justification for this act that in order to keep themselves alive and keep the monkey off their back, since there really is no other God but the true and living God, what, what's the difference if we give a pinch of incense? And so they would give a pinch of incense and they would they could work within the Roman culture. They could exist politically. We get, you have King Herod in uh, in Jesus' time, who was a who was a Jewish person. Uh, sometimes people debate that, but he works peace political. They they learn how to exist in that. But Christianity is not so squishy. Christianity leaves no quarter. And here and here's a here's an example of that. So if you have the emperor, let's just choose Nero because he's everybody's favorite, right? Nero. <clears throat> Nero was called the Lord and Savior. This is his official title in the Roman world. Lord and Savior. Lord and Savior of what? Of Rome. Because Nero, all the Caesars, they become known as, they become recognized as deities, as gods. Because they're the ones who, they're the sovereigns. They're like a god. That's why you obey them, do whatever they want you to do. So the Lord and Savior. Now, the Christians come along, and who do Christians call Lord and Savior? You got Romans 10, 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the what? Lord. The Greek word's kurios. There's no dot on the iota of it. There you go. So Christians, they say, we can't do that. We cannot confess Nero or this emperor is Lord and Savior. We only have one Lord and one Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. We cannot. So these Hebrews, who under their system had been able to get by, now they say, okay, we can't do that. And so it's harder for the Christians to exist. They can't, they can't, they can't, uh, what's the word, equivocate. They can't compromise. So it's more difficult for them. They're persecuted. It is Nero. Nero persecutes Christians big time. Big time. And, and there's even a rumor that his mother became a Christian. Converts. And, and Christianity even creeps up into the Roman, into the Roman uh, aristocracy. It's it's really it's it's working its way through. You know, Proverbs says that a spider. You can find a spider everywhere, even in the king's house, because <laughs> they just they just get everywhere. So there's this frustration. And they're thinking about okay, as Christians we're suffering, so why don't we go back to Judaism? It doesn't look like Jesus is coming anytime soon. Life is harder as a Christian, so let's go back to the old religion. And Hebrews is written. To say, don't do it. If you leave Christ, there's no salvation. There's no salvation for you. If you abandon Christ, there's no salvation. Now, okay, so when was it written? Um, it was written before 70 AD, 
because 70 AD is such a big, a big event. If it had been, if it had taken place, the author would have said, you guys all know what happened. At <laughs> it's over. Now, I think that the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is a fulfillment of the parable given in Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 18, where you have the parable of the, the ruler who has a vineyard and he buys it. It's his vineyard. He goes away to a far country and he leaves managers to watch over it. Then he wants to know how his vineyard is doing. So he sends a, a servant back to say, to see how it's going. And, and when the managers see the servant, they beat him and cast him out. And then this happens three times. Then the owner says, now I'm going to send them my son. And they will honor my son. So he's, he sends his son. The managers see the son. And what do they say? It's the heir. Let's kill him. Then when the old codger dies, there's no heir to take it. We can have it for ourselves. So they kill the son. Listen, listen to what it says in Luke 20, verse uh, 17. This is about verse 15. So they threw him out of the vineyard. This is Luke 20, 15. And killed him. What then, Jesus says, will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Will he, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, what then is the meaning of that which is written? He quotes Psalms. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the head of the corner. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And the teachers of the law and the chief priest looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Jesus, they know he's talking about them. You're going to reject me, and so the great stone that you reject is going to crush you when he comes. And, so they, and the Jewish world, the religious leaders, that system, they rejected Jesus. Well, what's the consequence? 70 AD. It just to me, to me, there's debates about what I just said, but to me, to me, it's just it's just, it's just so it's so vivid, vividly obvious. So Hebrews is to tell the Jews, do not do not continue to reject this one. Don't reject the Messiah. If you reject the Messiah, you're toast, basically. So on the next page, now we'll look at the chapter of Hebrews, and um, if you have any questions along the way, just let me know. Does anybody need more coffee? I'll pour you some. I can't remember what I got last time, so I made them mix some brews over here. So, the primary theme of Hebrews is to say Jesus is better. Jesus is the one. In verses 1 through 4, the main idea is we need to pay the more earnest heed because Jesus is the better messenger. In chapter 1, it said that the Son is superior to the angels. He is the better messenger. He's a better messenger than the angels were, better substance, etc. He's the creator, uh, the whole nine yards. So let's read chapter 2. It's only uh, 18 verses. And 
where we didn't work through, work through these things. Chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to that which we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by the angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. That's talking about Jesus. Then you have God the Father. God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So because Jesus is the better messenger, we should, give, we should pay better attention to him. Now, um, we kind of know how this, how this goes. Consider the source, right? You ever said that to your kids or to somebody? Hey, consider the source. <laughs> somebody at your job is running their mouth, you know, some, some peon person didn't, doesn't matter, really. And, they, and they're running their mouth. And then, then you're talking to your kid and they're, they're talking about it. And say, yeah, well, who is this person? Oh, they're nobody. Are they a manager? No. Are they a boss? No. Well, it doesn't matter what they say. Consider the source. My dad used to tell me this when I was a kid. He said, he said, it doesn't matter what anybody tells you. It only matters what I tell you. <laughs> I'd say, okay. So if my dad said it, it was law. Everybody else, you know, was kind of squishy on it. But Jesus is the better messenger, so pay better heed to him. Verse 2 says, if the messenger, if the messenger angels in the Old Testament were to be obeyed, or else, and that was the implication, then Jesus' message should be given greater deference, greater obedience. We should give him more attention. Verse 3, if we have heard the message of the Son and neglect to listen and obey to the Son, then we are toast. <laughs> if you do not listen to what Jesus says, listen to his message, you're a goner. You are a goner. It's a, it's a narrow path that goes to heaven. It's the path that Jesus has outlined for us. So if you don't want to listen to Jesus, you're toast. This is the warning. Verses, the rest of verse 3 through 4, this message of the Son that he gives was validated by his Father via signs and wonders and miracles. The presence of miracles is so important. When Moses came to Pharaoh, God says, Moses, go tell people to what? Let my people go. God gave Moses signs miracles to perform who did moses perform those miracles for first pharaoh or the leaders of israel it was the leaders of israel he comes back to them and says hey guys i'm here to lead you out of captivity i'm here to take you out of egypt and they look around and go impossible no way it can happen pharaoh is not going to let us go and what does he do he throws down his staff, it turns into a snake. He picks it up, it turns into a stick again. And then he does the crazy thing. He puts his hand in his coat, pulls it out, and it's leprous, rotting, and putrid. Puts it back in his coat, pulls it out, and it's clean. These are the, these are the first two signs he gives to Israel. So God's message in these big ways is usually attended by miracles. And this is why, probably, in the last days before Jesus returns, there may be, I'm going to say this carefully, there may be eschatological miracles connected to Jesus' return. Now, what kind of miracles will they be? There are miraculous things that take place in the book of Revelation that kind of defy logic. For instance, 
Revelation chapter 11. You have the two witnesses. And nobody knows who they are exactly, but, well, I think most people think it's Elijah and uh, the other guy that in the Old Testament, he was just taken. Uh, he was one of uh, Methuselah's kids, uh, Enoch. These are the two prophets, the two witnesses. They come back, they prophesy, people try to kill them, but they're killed for trying to kill them. And then they do get killed, and they lay dead in the street for three days. And then what happens? They rise from the, they rise from the dead. That, now that's a miracle. <laughs> and that's in, that's in the eschaton. That's, that's towards the end. Now is that going to, now there's a, I'm not going to I don't want to get too deep into that stuff. But miracles seem to mark these things. So Moses comes with miracles. Elijah comes to apostate Israel and Judah. Elijah does all kinds of miracles. Elijah's taken away in a fiery chariot. And then who follows Elijah? The other guy whose name almost, sounds almost Elisha follows him. Elisha comes. Elisha does twice as many miracles as Elijah does, which is fascinating. So you have these, these, these big events take place validated by miracles. And then you have John the Baptist comes. Now, the interesting thing about John the Baptist is the Bible says in John chapter 8, not John, I think it's John chapter 12, that John did no miracle. <laughs> John does no miracle. But then Jesus comes, and John baptizes Jesus, and that's when the miracles start. Of course, the, we, we'd have to say the virgin birth was a miracle too, wouldn't we? That, <laughs> but that's not a miracle performed by a person. That was a miracle performed by the Heavenly Father through the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus comes, he's baptized, and as soon as he's baptized, he goes to the marriage supper at Cana, and what does he do? Turns water into whiskey. I mean wine. <laughs> he starts doing miracles, incredible miracles. The last chapter of John says that if we wrote down all the miracles that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough paper to write it down on. So Jesus comes with these big miracles. Well, Jesus transfers his authority to the apostles. Jesus leaves. How do we know that the apostles are the messengers of God? They do miracles. They do signs. They do wonders. But these, but these things begin to fade out. But the, and the message stays, but the message stays the same. And then probably in the last days, we'll see eschatological miracles. We know from reading Revelation, there will be these wonders in the sky, stars falling, one-third of the trees dying, grass dying, all the waters turned to blood. One of my friends who is a, uh, uh, he worked for NASA. I don't know what you call those. He wasn't an astronaut, some kind of a physicist or mathematician. Who are the guys that work with stars? Uh, astronomer. He said that... He thought that uh, one of these big meteorites was, would probably hit the ocean and corrode immediately and cause the seas to turn, uh, I don't know, to, to be polluted. And that would cause fish and everything to start to die. He said that was the, his explanation for that miracle that causes the water to blood. Not really to blood, but maybe just to, uh, you know, well, in Oklahoma, the water's all red. <laughs> so... A really bad kind of red. So, 
So Jesus was validated by the Heavenly Father with these miracles that he did. Remember Nicodemus in John 3, he says, No man can do what you've been doing except the Father has sent him. Because they, they know that, that historical cycle of the prophets and the miracles. So that's, we should give him the more earnest heed because of who he is. Now verses 5 to 10. The better messenger is made lower than the angels. Verse 5. <clears throat> it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. So this better messenger, better than the angels, Better in office and message, but he's not better in substance than the angels. He's made lower than the angels, a lower category, you would say. Now, the angels as spirits, uh, this is an error in the sentence. Angels as spirits are not subject to the same laws of the natural world that a human is. Angels are spirits. Angels are intangible, they're tireless, they're ageless and powerful, and do not have needs of the flesh like we do. In that regard, they are better than man, yet God sent the better messenger in the lower form. Now we know Jesus was man just like you and I, because it's going to tell us in this chapter that he was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. But Jesus had natural fatigue. In John chapter 4, Jesus is on a journey. He comes to Jacob's well. And uh, I don't know what it says in the NIV, even the authorized version. It says that being wearied on his journey, he sat down on the well. Remember in the temptation in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is hungry and being hungered, being tired. When he is beaten at Calvary, he cries out in pain. He's a, he feels all the things that we feel. Now, you can't beat an angel. You can't, you can't make an angel cry uncle. Remember Jacob when he wrestled with the angel? Now, this is a striking thing. The Bible says that Jacob prevailed over the angel. <laughs> How do you prevail over a spirit being? This is, this is, a, this is a mystery to me um, and what's going on there. Anyway, but the messenger is made, Jesus is made in a lower form than the angels. Now, before the incarnation, Jesus existed in eternity as the Logos. This is a or Logos, however you want to say it. This is what Jesus existed in. And then the, the English is the is word. Now words are 
basically intangible. It's an idea. It's, it's not something you put your, we put them on paper, we can see words, but you don't have to be on, they don't have to be on paper to exist, right? They're words. So he existed as the, the Logos, and then he becomes flesh, which is definitely a step down. A step down. We're made in the image of God, in the likeness of God, but we are not God. We're not, we're not like he is up there in heaven. The Bible says God's a spirit. And then you have this other thing you have to kind of be on guard for. Sometimes people say that God is a man. God is, or God does have fleshly substance. Right, this better. This word is hard to spell. And throw po. I think the anthropomorphosis. I think that's the right word. I'm not sure if I spelled it right at the end. But yeah, this anthropedic language, where it says that God has eyes, God has ears. God has hands, God has legs, where God's described like a man. Now, the Mormons, they say, the Bible says God has legs. He's got hands and ears and eyes and a mouth, so he must have it. But it's anthropomorphic language, so we can relate to it. It's not, the, it's not a description of his actual substance. That's the thing you have to, you have to keep be mindful of sometimes. Um, we sing that song. He's got the whole world in his hands. You guys ever sing that song? He's got the whole world. And so. Yeah. And I think it, sometimes the Psalms, Psalms 137, I think it says, uh, God, he knows, he knows our frame. He remembers we're dust. And we can understand a mighty arm. We can understand an all-seeing eye. We can understand an ear. Those, that's to help us understand, to relate to God. And then, of course, we have Jesus, who is all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And we can really relate to him. And he can really relate to us because he's lived our lives, lived our suffering, lived with our, with our joys and sorrows. So, made lower. Well, why was he made lower? Well, we have to answer that in the next section. Which, ignore that question. But just there's the description. He says, the angels, they will not rule the world to come. They're not going to be the rulers. Verses 6 through 8, this is a quotation of Psalms 8, verses 4 through 6. And what David is doing is David is responding in the psalm to the privilege bestowed upon man. Because David can see that God seems to be very taken with man. What is man that thou art mindful of him? What is the son of man that you quickenest him? David, as David knows himself and he gets to know God, he is in awe that God would have anything to do with him. And you guys may have this experience sometimes. I've had it with, with, my, with Valerie a lot of times. Is I think sometimes she is like an an angelic being from heaven in my life, right? She's so much better than I deserve. And I think, how in the world did I get so stinking lucky? I hit the jackpot over and over and over. You know, it's like, 
because I, I I meet people who 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 marry who they think is a wonderful person, and you know five years into marriage that person becomes insane, goes crazy, becomes addicted to drugs or just you know. And I'm in awe that this wonderful person wants to be with me for the rest of her life, and then she acts like she enjoys being with me. <laughs> that's the that's the mind blower. I'm in awe, and David is in awe that the mighty God pays attention to him and then man in general because David has come to know what he is. He's a wretch. He he is he's a sinner. So this is what he, this is the quotation. It's not because man is so great. It's not because man's a higher thing. David is in awe of this. David could David knows man's rotten. And then verses the rest of verse eight to the end of it, as we'll see a little language of the already not yet language of the New Testament, where it says you crown, verse 7, you crowned him, you made him the lower than angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And then, then the writer says, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. Now, this, this is a good, this is a, this is, this is one of the things that makes Hebrews hard to understand is because he just said, everything's been put under the feet of this, of man, Right? Jesus is going to be the one who's going to have everything under his feet. But it doesn't look like everything's under his feet. It doesn't look like everything's under his control. It doesn't look like the world is, uh, he's not visibly ruling over everything now. This is the already and not yet. And I put a bunch of verses here. All these things talk about from the foundation of the world that's already been done. Already been done. So, Jesus is already on the throne. And you and I, positionally, we are in Christ positionally. Jesus sits on the throne right now in the eternal realm. Ephesians says that you and I are seated with him already in heavenly places. We're already there. Or are we here? Or are we in both places? It's the already and not yet. The kingdom is here. Jesus said the kingdom is in the heart of man. Is the kingdom here or is the kingdom still in the future going to be visibly fulfilled in the millennium? Well, yes, it's, it's all those. It's the already and not yet. It's, it's called inaugurated eschatology. It's already began, but it's not done yet. There's some big work going on here. And so it doesn't look like he's on the throne. And, you know, when you look around the world, I'm going to say this to you guys, and this is just. When you look around the world, you get a little frustrated. You get a little frustrated. Why is it like this? Why, why must it, the old song is, uh, why must it be thus all the day long? Well, others are unmolested, though in the wrong. <laughs> Why are the good guys getting it in the neck? Why are the bad guys doing whatever they want to do? Why does it have to be this way? And uh, man, it can be very frustrating. It can be it can be, it can be debilitating. You think, well, if God if 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 God is good and God is just and then why is all this suffering going on? 
I'm constantly struck with this. this. There's so much suffering in the world. I meet people every day. You think and they have real problems and they need help. You think, well, I can't really help them. People are suffering. Why is it this way? Why do I have to suffer? Why is it to be this way? And I got to find some comfort somewhere, right? I got to I got to find something to lay my head on. So for me, in that moment, I become I become a complete fatalist, and I say, well, it must be this way because God wants it that way. That's true. And in terms of That's true. suffering, in terms in the context of eternity, this kind of suffering is not going to happen. You're, you're, you're right. You're right. It's very, it, Paul calls in Hebrews, Paul, uh, our light affliction. You know, it's, you, you have not yet resisted unto blood, he says. Um, not the same kind of suffering that Christ had. So you, you're right. Because you, you're, you, you're trying to... I'm trying to figure out a way to find, give myself some comfort, some peace, because there's kind of these two views where everything's a result of my effort, right? I made bad decisions, so I'm eating the consequences today. This is a true thing. Um, but then if you, you start looking back to your life, you, you, you see, I failed so many times, you know, and I, I don't, uh, it gets depressing. You feel like it's all on you, on your back. And so to deal with that myself, I go, you know, it must be the Lord. The Lord must want it this way. And a, ver a verse that makes me think about that, that I, that I go to, is Psalm 127. Because it says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the house, the watchman waketh in vain. It is vain to sit up late and eat the bread of sorrows. It's emptiness. To worry about all these things, because the Lord has to do it. He has, you have to rest in His, and His wisdom and provision. Uh, but anyway, that that's how I deal with. <laughs> that's how I try to keep myself some comfort. An old preacher said, uh, "Providence is not your Bible, but it's your bed. You have to rest in God's God's providential workings in the world that He's doing." He's doing the right things. And if Romans 8, 28 is true, all things work together for good to them who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Now, it doesn't mean all things are good, but anyway, that's that's what I, those are my thoughts about that. The already and not yet. I'm, I'm trying to rest in him and his purposes. He's doing things that I, that I don't know. So for instance, this is going to be recorded, so I'll be careful. It is recorded. So I was talking to someone this week about something that, that, that they faced. And uh, and this person said, it's really setting me back on my heels. And I'm really looking for some answers. I'm looking for something, some truth. And what they needed to hear was the gospel. And because they'd gone through that hard, that hard situation, I was able to sit there with them and give them the gospel and see them come to a, an understanding of what the gospel really said. And that moment would have never taken place if they hadn't gone through the difficulty. So it's just, you, God is, 
God is uh, is is at work. Let's finish the rest of this before we. I don't want to take too long. Nine, nine, nine to eighteen. This this section answers that question that I posed earlier. Why was he made in the lower form? Why? Jesus was made lower than angels so sinners could be saved. Look at the reading, verse nine. We see Jesus made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here, I, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted, and is able to help those who are being tempted. He was made lower than the angels so he could taste death and suffer so that our salvation could be perfect. He was made lower to make us holy so he could call us brothers. The relationship between Jesus and the redeemed is described in many ways in Scripture. Man and wife, siblings, master, slave, king and servants, priest and people, shepherd and sheep. And all these examples are to show us the deep connections we have with Christ from, from different perspectives. Because there's definitely a different relationship you have. If you're a shepherd with your sheep, right? You have a relationship with them. But it's not like you have with your sons or daughters or brother and sister or your wife. It's, it's different. But, the, but there's different aspects of this relationship we have with Christ. And these all these phrases are used to, the, uh, to describe it. All these different examples show us the connection. It's a multi-layered relationship. And I think all these examples and connections are to show us that once you are in the fold, you're not getting out. You're brought to him. Verse 11 says, Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Now, in this instance, I don't think he's talking about the uh, the human family. I think he's talking about the divine family. And I, and I say that because of this. Who is Jesus' father? Who's the father of Jesus? God. Jesus is conceived 
Mary conceives by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's a divine act. It's God. Believers. Who is the father of believers? It's also God. Because believers are born again by the Holy Spirit. So we're of the same family. We're born again by the Spirit of God. Born again through His Spirit. We don't, we don't come to we don't come into a connection with God through our own devices. This is John 1 113, which John 1 12 says, As many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on his name. Verse 13, which were born not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. Of God. Born of God. This is 1 John 5 4 2. It says, those who believe in Jesus are born of God. This life comes from Him. So we have the same Father, this family, this family. We're of the same. And then you get down to verse 14, and it talks about the fleshly family. The fleshly family. Now, here, He's He suffered for us in His flesh. He had to die for us. Because we're connected to it in both these ways. Our sins are committed in the flesh. Now, verses 12 through 13 are quotations of the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 22, 22 and Isaiah 8, 17. Now, the Schofield Study Bible says Isaiah 8, 17 that's quoted here is actually quoted from the Septuagint. And so if you read Isaiah 8, 17... In the in, in an English Bible, it doesn't read the same as it does in the uh, Greek Septuagint. It doesn't read the same as it does in the Hebrew Bible either, and that's uh, that's what Schofield says. So his note says, "I don't know Hebrew at all, um, so I can't I can't tell you about Hebrew. All I know is Greek." Now John Gill says it's not correct that it's not Isaiah eight seventeen, but it's actually Psalms eight eighteen two and fifty. And I put that there just because I have a lot of respect for John Gill, and I think you got to be real careful when you disagree with John Gill. <laughs> he's not the Apostle Paul, but uh, he's the Apostle John. <laughs> so, uh, but everybody else, nobody agrees with Gill. That's that's what I, that's why I think. Well, maybe maybe Gill errs because if you're uh, if everybody else disagrees with you, uh, to this point, these Old Testament passages. Our prophetic statements that God will have, that the Son will have his people. Verses 14 and 15, the Son was made flesh. He shared in our humanity so he could destroy what terrorizes and enslaves us. And what is it that terrorizes and enslaves us? It's death. The fear of death. There's a famous story in church history uh, in the Church of England in the middle 1500s. There was a a teacher at Cambridge, his name was Hugh Latimer, and Latimer was a Catholic, and this is about, you know, it's probably 1540-ish. Once the Protestant Reformation starts in 1517, um, Re Reformation principles and teachings start to make it over to the British continent, the British Commonwealth. And uh, at the time, British is, uh, Britain is Catholic. And, uh, of course, you go through the uh, Henry VIII starts the, the Church of England. 
but still, it's still Catholicism. He, he he doesn't start the Church of England because he wants to be a reformer. He starts the Church of England because he wants to get a divorce, and it wants to, uh, you know. Do you know part of his reasoning for why his divorce was justified, if I remember this right, was um, uh, what was it? like he thought he would. The reason why he couldn't have a child with one of his wives was because she had, I think she had been married or engaged to his brother. Is that right, Jock? Do you know? It was. It was it there's some some kind of it's some kind of some kind of hinky thing about that. Because he had some, he had some justification that when I read it, I thought, maybe, maybe. But he, anyway, he got divorced, and he, like, his guy cuts off his wife's head and that kind of thing. But anyway, Latimer is in the Church of England, and he is a Catholic. I mean, he is a he's a Marian, he is a uh, a Mass guy, believes in the Mass. And then the Reformation comes in, and his uh, his cohorts around him are becoming. Protestants, they're believing in justification by faith, and so Latimer, uh, he becomes a Protestant. He becomes a, a a true Christian, I would say. And when when Mary becomes a queen, uh, he preaches a sermon against the mass. When Mary becomes queen, because when Mary becomes queen, Britain goes back to Catholicism, full on Catholicism. The Reformation principles are all set aside, and he preaches a sermon against the mass. And she says, you're dead. You're dead. So, but before they bring you to stake, they would always give you a chance to recant. And so Latimer, when faced with his own mortality, you know what he does? He recants. <laughs> he, says, he says, I don't want to die. Let him go back to his resume, his, resume his work. But he's filled with guilt. He's filled with guilt. He says, who am I to betray the Lord? I betrayed Christ. I've committed a sin. And so he goes right back to preaching against the, the Pope and against the, the necessity of the Mass. He goes right back to preaching against it. Gets drugged right back into court. And they say, recant. And he says, I'm not going to recant. He goes he goes to the stake and is burned to death. He and a, he and a, he and a friend of his named uh, Ridley are all, they're burned at the stake at the same time. And as Ridley is going to the stake, it's where that famous thing is, Latimer says, now play the man, play the man, Mr. Ridley, and we'll light such a fire as the world has never seen here. And so death, death is something we're all afraid of. Even, even, even Latimer, his great faith and knowledge of the scriptures, afraid of dying. Joe Diffie, you guys know who Joe Diffie was? Country singer? <laughs> he wrote that great song, uh, Prop Me Up Beside the Jukebox Before I Die. <laughs> Prop me up the side the jukebox when I die. In that song, uh, he says, uh, "Lord, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go tonight." Mm-hmm. The, the the fear of death is there. Is it there for all for uh, even us Christians? But Christians are not enslaved by fear of death, because death for us is a door, a door from here to eternity. And when you die as a Christian, if Luke 16 is true, and I think it is, when Lazarus the beggar died, the Bible says that angels were there to conduct Lazarus from this horrible life he had into the glory realm. So when we pass into death, we're not going to be 
It's not going to be stepping into a dark hall all alone. There will be the messengers, the angels to carry us over into the glory realm. So, verse 16. This is, this is an important turn, I think. Jesus is not the helper of angels. He is the one who's devoted to, the, to Abraham's descendants. Now, Abraham's descendants here could be read two ways. It could be read as those who are believers. That's what Paul says in Galatians. Or the natural descendants of Abraham or Jews. Now, which is it? I think it's Jews because he's writing to Jews. This person is. And I say, I say Paul, but I don't know if it's Paul. He's writing to Jews to tell them that the Jesus that he's preaching, the Jesus of Gentiles, the Jesus of Christianity, is their Jesus too. He's their Savior too. You're not cast away. You're not cast away. In the apostolic era, there was a growing emphasis on Gentile ministry and a de-emphasis on the priority of Jewish outreach. In, in Acts 18.6, the Apostle Paul preaches to the Jews and they reject him so assiduously that he said he he says hey i'm done talking to you guys i'm going to the gentiles and there's a real shift in his ministry so the jews they, they know some of these things so the call here is to hebrews to remind them jesus is their only savior he is especially their savior in romans 11 1 paul answers this question has god cast away his people has god cast away the jewish people are they outside the new covenant no, he says, God forbid. They're not cast away. But if they're going to be brought into the new covenant kingdom, they can only come through Jesus. There's no other way in. It's still through Christ. In verses 17 and 18, the humanity of Christ is described here as being so complete that he knows exactly what it's like to be a human and to live with the many temptations and weaknesses that we are plagued with. He overcame them. But his victory did not make him pompous, pompous or arrogant, because as our Savior, he is merciful and faithful to us. Because when you're struggling with your besetting sin, whatever that may be, Jesus knows what it's like to struggle with sin, with desires, with temptations. He knows. He knows. And he, over, he overcame them. How did he overcome them? He was, he was the God-man. He had an ability that you and I don't have, but he overcame. He overcame. That's why he overcame him. It's called the peccability of Christ, which is widely debated sometimes. But his his firsthand knowledge of what it's like to be to struggle with sin, he is merciful to us. You ever, you ever had this experience with your kids sometimes, where they're really having a hard time with something, and you know exactly how they felt. Exactly how they felt. You've been exact because you know history repeats itself, right? Technically, history doesn't repeat itself, <laughs> but things do happen. So when I, I can remember, um, uh, being like feel like you don't fit in. Because one of my kids will say, you know, they, they say I don't, I don't look like I fit anywhere, and I know exactly what that feels like. I can still remember going to school, not really fitting in. I wasn't really the, the atypical kind of kid, not, not a natural athlete, clumsy, <laughs> just no real skills, except I wouldn't quit, you know, just these not really fit. I feel like I fit my niche. Always feeling like I didn't look the best, you know, and you talk to your kids about it, you're like, I know exactly how you feel. I've been in the exact situation. 
you know, being uncertain about it. And you, and Jesus knows all the things. He, he, he had to, that's why he is. He can be merciful and uh, helpful. This is verse eighteen in the uh, NIV. It kind of loses something. It says, "Because he himself, because he himself suffered, he was tempted. He is able to help those who are tempted." In the authorized version, it says, "He is able to succor those who are tempted." Sucker, like a mother takes a baby and coddles it and holds it and aids it, taking it very close. This is what Jesus does for us. And I'm sorry I didn't mean to go 15 minutes over, but that's all I got to say about all those things. You guys have any questions about any of those things? Don't don't hold me to the fire on the eschatology things because uh, I reserve the right to change my mind on 